0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on. Settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10
2: to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? You're listening to the game podcast from The Times. If you enjoy the analysis on this show, you can get even more with your Times subscription. Every Monday at 5 pm, James Gearbrandt's football newsletter provides in depth insight into the weekend's action exclusively to Times subscribers. Sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash newsletters.
3: This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, which striker made more of an impact in their first game of the Premier League season? Erling Hartland, Darwin Nunez, or Alexander Mitrovic? We'll also be talking about problems at Aston Villa, the great start to the season for Spurs, what's so good about the ownership at Brighton, and what's so bad about the leadership at Manchester United. We'll also talk our favourite long-range goals. Joining me, Tony Cascarino, Alison Rudd, and Gregor Robertson. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game. I'm Hugh woodson and literally this isn't easy to say, nor will it be throughout the entire podcast after a four-day stag-do in Ibiza. Um, But the Premier League is back. (laughs) It wasn't just me cheering uh, on the goals of this weekend, no. Yes, it was me enjoying myself. So it's going to be um, a little bit less of me on this podcast, a little bit more of everyone else, and I will struggle through, but but have no sympathy for me. I did enjoy myself. Let's start with someone else who enjoyed themselves this weekend, Erling Hardland's Premier League debut at Manchester City. He scored both goals in a comfortable 2-0 win at West Ham. The question is really, are we going to see a different city with the Norwegian up front? What did we learn about the new Manchester City this weekend? Tony?
1: Well, they were slightly more pedestrian in their possession of the ball but one thing was clear. Look, I think you have to get David Moy's idea of how he took on City and that was defending incredibly deep you know, with the, the full-back sitting and the back line defending very deep to stop anything in behind and I, the irony of, of, of the outcome was, well, they got punished with a penalty and then they got punished later on with a through ball from De Bruyne which enabled Haaland to get a well-finished goal. But what we did see is that if you took the numbers, I was looking at the numbers at half-time during the weekend where uh, Manchester City had 400 completed passes and obviously West Ham had less than 100, which is the dominance of the possession, but there was only one chance for each team in the first half. But within that, you you felt... I'm I'm, I'm watching Haaland and thinking... He loves to be on the shoulders of defenders and and exploit space in behind. But how explosive he was over five and 10 yards was amazing to win the penalty. And then we saw the other side of Harland, where after 20 yards and once he's got going, he still has another gear again. And that is a completely different dynamic where they are going to stretch teams when they move the ball forward very, very quickly. They were going slow, 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 which they've always done to a degree, but suddenly burst into life, which they did with Harland, who ticks that box. And I've been lucky. I've seen a lot of Haaland over the years and his worst aspect of his game is probably heading the ball when he's six foot five. But one thing he excels at is an amazing turn of pace and be a very good finisher and a clinical finisher when given opportunities. So yes, I do believe we'll see a slight change in City. They will still be that possession-based team, but having that threat of a uh, number nine you know, they've played with false number nines. But have you said to me, a real number nine or a false number nine? I take a real number nine every day of the week.
4: Yeah, I thought it was a fascinating game to watch. And the, the thing that was leaping out to me in the in the first half was, boy, he's going to have to be patient. Like, he's hard, he's hardly going to get a touch of the ball the way that Manchester City play. And when they're playing against teams, as Tony says, who are just sitting back deep and trying to, you know, close space, he's, he started to, to drop deep a few times to try and find the ball. And, you know... It, wasn't particularly successful at that. But as Tony said, that, that just that devastating moment in the first half where he saw that Gundogan, I think it was, had got, got the ball in the half turn and he just turned around and he was off. He didn't even look and he was he knew that the ball was coming. That was just devastating to see. I, I just thought he's going to have to be patient. He's going to really have to be patient. I think he had 32 touches in the game. That's, that's few, fewer than the goalkeeper, Ederson. Despite all that, you know, he was man of the match and, and scored two goals so there are going to be games where he's going to have to be patient like that and just still see we can see already that he's just ready to come alive there was a cross as well from Grealish I think in the second half where he just kind of dart and run to the front post and I think it was Gary Neville on on CoCom just saying like, as a defender you've got no chance because of his size because of his speed and kind of speed of thought as well really marking him in the box like that is going to be a nightmare so yeah, it was, I thought it was a fascinating game to watch, but mainly because a lot of the game he's not going to not going to be doing much.
3: Alison, how do you think it affects City style? Are they going to be more or less dominant? It's only one game to judge. I know.
5: Well, I did. I did half joke. Oh, look at City! They're just lumping the ball up to the big man now. But I mean, they did that a couple of times. Mostly, they were um, they were City and. I think the chaps have talked about patience. I think that's really important, um, purely from Haaland's point of view, because I think City will play as though almost as though he's not there sometimes. They they will still have their style, their possession-based football, crisp passing. But the minute that any defense decides, oh, it's time for us to try and take control briefly of this game. And West Ham did that. I think West Ham were playing a containment game and thought if they could just have Ten minutes of dominance or aggression, they might be able to catch City cold and they moved up a bit. As soon as those spaces appear, City adapt, they get the ball in behind and Harlan's style when he runs onto the ball is quite scary. I. I haven't seen legs that long in the Premier League for quite <laughs> or a long arms. time. <laughs> or, or, or any bit of him, really, I'm sure. But uh no, it was, I mean, I, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was impressive given this is the second chance we've had to see him properly. And he already looked like 100 percent better than he did in the community shields. So he's gonna grow with confidence at that pace. It is, it is quite scary, isn't it?
4: He is like jarring to watch, isn't he? I remember writing a piece a couple of years ago when he was at Salzburg and just going through a showreel of all these kind of his goals and games and stuff. And it's just you're just your eyes widen the bay. He's so different to anything anything else out there. And looks awkward a lot of the time. He doesn't look like a top class football, let's be honest about it but the, the things he does are certainly top class well he's and still what? he's
5: still growing gregor i think that's yeah. why he looks ungainly maybe yeah. they, they, they do say teenage boys are incredibly clumsy not because they don't care or they're <laughs> lazy it's because they don't their brain doesn't know where their feet are and i suspect <laughs> we'll see elements of him looking a bit like bambi
1: well isn't that the case for anybody that's plus six foot three you know they're they're going to look awkward, ungamely, as you mentioned, Al. Um So I think it it would hard to see him as a a beautiful footballer at six foot five.
4: How tall were you, Ton?
1: I'm six three, Gregor. <laughs> okay,
4: I'm six three, and I so that, I was called that was a cut off point there. <laughs> well, no, I I say
1: that because I look I'm. <laughs> I'm being a bit flippant as in saying that anyone of a certain height, but when you get to an extreme height, which is six foot five for a footballer, Gregor, we know very few players of that elk. Don't we? we, you know, we didn't come up against players that big very often. And generally they always look a bit awkward, but there is a, dynamism to his game explosive that just comes alive that feels unstoppable
4: absolutely it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable to see how explosive he is mm. just you know we knew it already but just to see it on the first day in the Premier League yeah. he's arrived
1: there was one incident in the game where Johnson who gets pulled out to the wing and has probably got three yards on Harland in the second half and he just went and it was the Terry on Re moment against Jamie Carragher where Johnson's not slow He's quite quite quick, but he just got left for dead in in over a 15, 20-yard period.
3: Haaland wasn't the only uh, a slightly ungainly striker, though, that we saw this weekend making their Premier League debut. As great as, as Haaland was, as clean, if you like, in terms of his play, Darwin Nunes made his debut for Liverpool he was quite fortunate. He scored and assisted one, but he made himself much more of a nuisance, I think, than Roberto Firmino as he came off the bench. It wasn't the best day for Liverpool. Um, they did manage to hold Fulham at Craven Cottage, so they got themselves a good point. But maybe they show that they have a little bit more work to do to find their rhythm than, than Manchester City do. There's, there is a part of me that feels, in the early part of the season in particular, Liverpool might be playing catch-up not necessarily in terms of points, but in terms of being at their absolute best. Tony, I'll start with you. What do you think about that?
1: I've never seen Liverpool's midfield be so well, they were just dominated against Fulham. Fulham just swarmed all over them and did it brilliantly well. And, you know, we didn't see much of Robertson and Trent was finding it hard to do what we all know he can do is be really brilliant offensively for Liverpool. Fabinho was probably the poorest game I've seen him play. Thiago got injured as well within the game, but they really struggle in the centre of the park. And that's down to the way that Fulham just literally swarmed. And it was, you, you could tell in the first 10, 15 minutes that... I wonder if Liverpool are going to be able to work their way out of this problem in in the game. And let's get it right, Fulham were so good that Liverpool and the manager turns around and said that was a good point for us because there was, until Nunes come on, there wasn't any particular threat. Salah couldn't get in the game at all. You know, there was more of a threat from Diaz on the left. The moment that Nunes come on, and one thing I really like about him, and you talked about his goal and quite fortunate in some ways, but he looks like he's going to get chances all the time. A bit like Mo Salah has done over the years for Liverpool. Even when he doesn't play well, Mo Salah gets chances. That is the same feeling for me with Nunez that he comes on, he causes havoc, he stretches the opposition and with a great turn of you know we just talked about Haaland and 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 Nunes' pace is pretty devastating as well but he looks like he's always going to cause problems and until that moment he came on Liverpool looked pretty redundant in many ways I've, I've never seen their midfield be so dominated in the early part of the game
5: let's not forget they outplayed Manchester City in the community shield which I know is um, effectively a friendly but it wasn't played like a friendly it was a full stadium Uh, with both teams going for it. I'm not overly worried. These things happen. I think Fulham surprised Liverpool. I don't think anyone expected Fulham to have that amount of confidence and energy and tactical acumen, because generally they don't start their life in the Premier League very well. So it can happen. You know, those 12, 30 kickoffs early in the season, they can often be a blip. Sticky pitch. I'd, I'd rather see. I'd rather... And on a very dry
4: pitch.
5: <laughs> I would rather... I would rather see it as... They were probably a little cocky after defeating Manchester City. They took the trip to Craven Cottage a little too lightly, surprised with what they were given. And there were a lot of positives to come out of it. Um, obviously, Nunes being the main one because Tony mentioned sort of havoc. And... That's why he suits Liverpool so well, because a lot of what Liverpool do, and the reason they're exciting, a lot of neutrals like them, is they do create havoc. Their game is based on whiz-bang, whiz-bang, oh my goodness, what's happening next? And he sort of embraces that. He's sort of like the totem for it. I think his goals so far have been sort of like lucky, sort of like, I'm in the right place, I'm enjoying myself, I, I can get to grips with what Liverpool are doing here. He thinks as quickly as his teammates it's good to sort of make everyone think, well, we don't want, how do we, it's, it's, it's sort of like, how do you defend against him in a completely different way to how you might defend against Haaland? Because he's he's going to do those sort of in the box, finding space, thinking quicker than you sort of problems as a striker, I think. But I think he fits in really well. And that's a positive. And it's not something that we should think, oh, well, they're going to be playing catch up now, Liverpool, because they haven't got uh, Erling Haaland. I think he will be just as effective Liverpool as Harland
4: is for City. So there's no doubt he, he, he changed the game. It's funny, you know, his, his impact clearly he scored a goal and slightly fortuitously set up Mo Salah for another goal. But there were also a lot of moments where he was quite kind of sloppy and raw looking. A couple of times when he tried to go on a run with the ball and he just like it got tangled in his feet or he got dispossessed. So, like, despite all that, he definitely changed the game. It was like he was a beacon, like uh, whenever. Liverpool looking to play a ball forward or get the ball in the box, he was there. And it was like the ball was drawn to him. That's a good stat as well, I think. There was other, other crosses that came in. There's one where he nodded it down for Luis Diaz, who who got a kind of half volley off, but it was well blocked, I think, by Tossin. He was just always like Fulham's central defenders too, just visibly got more anxious and, <laughs> and sort of nervous looking and became error prone as well. So I think he just sort of, his, his energy and his presence and his stature as well actually so do you um, do you
5: agree do you agree Gregor, then that he, he looks like his his personality fits liverpool
4: i, I mean do, they're yeah. they're, fa- they're
5: famous do. for picking picking the right players but he he looks so comfortable there
4: i do a part a, a, you know part of that is because he he seems like a bundle of energy he's like liverpool's front three that's what they've kind of been renowned for over la- over recent years just you know very direct energetic and I don't know, uh, yeah. on the ball all the time, you know. And he, he he looked that way, even though he was a little. As I said, he looked a little bit raw. And with regards to before that, I mean, I'm with Tony. I would I would give Fulham the credit. I think they they in, the, in midfield in particular just ran all, ran all over them. Palinha was it looks like an absolute snip at twenty million. Portugal midfielder Fulham signed in the summer. Him alongside Harrison Reed. That's that's a promising you know two, yeah. uh, duo, full of energy and running, very combative as well you know Liverpool just they played a few sloppy passes early in the game and and Fulham took full advantage he just just kind of snapped snapped into the tackle and ran ran all over them so uh, we have to give Fulham great credit but there's no doubt that Nunes uh, looks a good fit and he changed the game
3: I think there was another forward for us to discuss, our third on this podcast, but a second in that game, who Gregor used the word beacon, um, Alexander Mitrovic, a couple of goals after 40-odd in the championship last year. The responsibility that he seems to have taken on, he seems to have basically found a real home that he loves in the shape of Fulham. He could be massive, he could be key
1: if they're going to survive, Tony, how well do you think he played? One thing I would say, and this is an easy sometimes, we can always throw this at players, but he looked slimmer than he normally is. Now, I'm talking maybe a couple of kilos, four four and a bit pound, lesser than he did, uh, certainly as his days at Newcastle, when Rafford totally didn't fancy him and shipped him off. Mitrovic has got a great goal and score record for Serbia. His record in the championship is exceptional. Now, stepping up from championship to Premier League, obviously, that's a huge obstacle. I did it myself back in the late 80s with Millwall. You you come up against far more accomplished defenders who are a bit quicker, way better technically. And, you know, they tend to be dominant on the ball they will be composed so it's not like playing in the championship and I would say that Mitrovic did something that has been missing in the game for for quite a few years now where just your presence and your physical ability and just Virgil van Dijk looked uncomfortable all game against him and yes the penalty was most people go on the air of the side of, yes it's a definite I'm it's a bit of a coin flip type of penalty for me but again all he what he did brilliantly was his running he's not quick Mitrovic he's not blessed with what we've just talked about Harlem pace or even close to that or even Darwin Nunes he's not He he's just a strong runner but caused Liverpool lots and lots of problems and I, I'm so interested to see how he does over the course of this season because Obviously, Marco Silva has stayed with the centre-forward that got 40-plus goals last year in the Championship, believing if he gets me 15, we'll stay up, and that will be a great return. And if he does achieve that, I'll be surprised because I I would have said if he gets 10 this year, it would have done brilliantly well. But quite clearly on Saturday, I mean, Fulham are going to have far bigger tests as in, you know, playing Liverpool... The adrenaline is already going. The opening game of the season, back in the Premier League, you are flying on all cylinders, and Mitrovic was. Now, when we go into the season and tougher games and you've lost a few, I think that's going to be the bigger test for Mitrovic, but brilliant on Saturday and did everything that a a number nine should do for his team.
5: Interesting, Tony. first thing you mentioned was um, Mitrovic's weight because I interviewed Shad Khan, the owner of Fulham, just before the season started, he'd, he'd made a trip to the training ground and I don't, I mean, I sort of feel like he shouldn't have said this, but he, <laughs> I, I said, you know, how's it looking? And he was saying, well, you know, gee, gee, Allison, I, I, I saw, I saw Mitro and, and he was looking really fit, looking really like he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't holding the pounds like he used to hold. And he was basically saying he used to be a bit of a fat geezer when he <laughs> came back for preseason training, but that Marco Silva had told him he wasn't having any of it. He wanted him to be trimmer and to come back in shape. And sure enough, I mean, it's work. Maybe maybe he's just found the right manager for him who can handle his personality. Everyone was shocked at the training round. Mitrovic came back from his holidays looking very, very trim. And that's the starting point, isn't it? Because if you if you get promoted with Fulham and you're, you've been a... Out eating your trifles or whatever, and you come back. You're not going to. You're not going to carry on in that mould of being a top striker from one division to the next. You've got to make an extra bit of effort, and he's Mitrovic has done that. So it's a no-brainer to laud him if you're Fulham because he broke records last season. Ow. It was a nightmare to play against, but he's fit now. He's properly fit. He's taking it more seriously than he's done before.
1: Al, can I just jump in there because this is from a personal. You know what happened to me when I went to France? I played in England at normally around 14 stone. I ended up playing my first game for Marseille at 13 six. The difference was unbelievable as me as an athlete. I suddenly, and I don't think I ever topped over 1310 by the time I'd finished in France, but that was still four pound lighter than I'd ever been in England. And it made an insane, I people that come to watch me and said, wow, your running ability and your, you know, your energy for 90 minutes was extraordinary. People would come and say to me, you, you know, see me before the game or see me after the game, say, you look actually ill because my face was so chiselled. And I said, I've never been so fit. And I was 34, 35. And so now, and look, I've said this all along, big centre forwards, they can't be slightly out of condition because they can look, like we touched on earlier, ungainly awkward and just not uh, up to speed of the game. But when I was as fit as I could be, I, it made a massive difference to me, and obviously my belief in myself it excelled. And Mitrovic, as soon as I saw him on the weekend, I was like, "Yeah, he looks, he looks trimmer—only a tad, but a big difference." In, I mean, watching him chase around Liverpool's defenders, well, I haven't seen Mitrovic do that ever.
4: Look, he, he was outstanding. But the one thing I would say is, and I wrote about this on Monday. I was at the game, Was that I think he's the you kind know, of narrative around Mitrovic about you know too good for the championship, not good enough for the Premier League is actually unfair too. Yeah. If you look back at his season, he's had three full seasons in the Premier League before this and they've all ended in relegation. So, you know, that, that's not his fault. He signed for Newcastle when Steve McLaren was the manager and that, we all know, you know, how that ended. I think six wins in 28 games McLaren had. So, and he scored nine goals. Like, mm. it's not a disastrous return in a in a really miserable Newcastle team where the, the atmosphere was sour. Uh, at Fulham, when he helped him back up his first season, he scored 11 goals. And that was after Fulham had spent the 100 million really badly and, you know, completely wrecked their team morale and also sacked two managers, Jukanovic and Ranieri, before turning to Parker. So that was another pretty turbulent season. He got 11 goals. And his last season, he only started 13 games because Scott Parker didn't play him. Mm-hmm. And he scored three goals. So, like, I think it's a, it's been a little bit unfair. It's, it's partly because of... The remarkable contrast between that and his output in the championship, which has been record-breaking, that's part of the reason. But, you know, it's also just something that takes hold sometimes, a little kind of reputation you get. And I I think he's good enough to play in the Premier League. What he needs is a team that attacks, a team that puts crosses in the box, and a team that gets players around them because he can't play as an isolated centre-forward in a team that wants to counter-attack like Benitez or Parker did. He needs players around them. And I think with Silva he's going to get that he did last season and it looks like they're going to you know attack the Premier League in the same vein
3: yeah very very good opening uh, weekend performance from Fulham Um, not so for Manchester United we'll discuss them next and so much of what's going on at Old Trafford
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
2: Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So congratulations to Brighton and Hove Albion, who won at Manchester United for the first time in league history. Uh, Pascal Gross with a double as he continued his great run against United. It was a fantastic performance from Brighton. So I want to very quickly start by discussing them. Gregor, um, I think for a lot of people, there was such a huge contrast between the two teams. But I think... Graham Potter deserves credit, and their players do as well. What did you see from Brighton?
4: More of the same. More of a very well coached, invested team, despite having lost a couple of their best players this summer. It's, it's funny. I read I was reading um, an interview with Graham Potter by Johnny Northcroft on, in the Sunday Times as you can. And I've said in the past on this podcast that, like you know, Graham Potter's record's remarkable. Really, when you when you think back to his time in you know Austersons, uh, Swansea. And what he's done with Brighton, you know, completely transforming the way they play, taking them up. I think they finished ninth last season. But I just, you know, he seems he's clearly he clearly does something to engage his players and get remarkable levels. Of performance and improve his players, and he, he, then he comes out in front of the, the the cameras and he gets fairly bland sort of platitudes his answers. And you don't, I, I don't really see it. I don't really see where's this kind of inspirational figure. Then I read Johnny Northcross interview. You know, someone who sat down with him pro- probably for a good hour and had a chat. And you just see him. You just hear someone who is like a, a good person. That sounds really simple. I mean, Nottingham Forest players said last season that Steve Cooper was someone who kind of showed them love. And I think he does the same. I think it's like been very valuable. I think he he was talking about having he lost both of his parents in uh, his first six months at, at Brighton, and it just made him think a lot about what you know you should be doing with your life. And he was saying that the biggest thing is trying to do something positive for for other people. I think he sees he sees that as his his job at Brighton. So you know, before we start talking about his tactics, which are are superb and kind of did a lot more than uh, to impress than the Manchester United. I think it's really his his success is rooted in being able to engage players and and improve them and, and ask them to kind of buy into something which is going to improve themselves and improve the club. Then you talk about the tactics and the way they dominated the midfield with that kind of box midfield, of uh, Lalana, McAllister, Caicedo and and Gross. Manchester United were just all at sea, still watching Fred and McDominy chasing, chasing like shadows, headless chickens, whatever cliche you want to use about that midfield. They just dominated, and and you know we're going to talk about Manchester United afterwards. But Mm. Brighton were, Brighton were brilliant. The goal as well, I think it was a was it the second goal where they just started in the from their own corner and built their way up through yeah through the pitch got the shot off and there was five or six bodies in the box. They flood the box always. It's just <laughs> plenty to watch. And what Graham Potter has done, uh, continues to do is pretty remarkable.
5: I just, I want to echo what Gregor just said, because I have sat down with, with Graham and he he is different when he's away from the camera, although he was funny this weekend, wasn't he? Because he did say Danny Velvet would have played with a toilet strap to his bottom yeah. because he had a, <laughs> he'd had a tummy bug. You don't often get images like that from from managers. Um, so, but he is he is very very thoughtful and clearly the players buy into his philosophy. My overwhelming impression oh there were a lot there was a lot to take away wasn't there from that that game at Old Trafford? But my overwhelming impression was one of it was drenched in irony because Ten Hag has come from Ajax, which are a club that know their place in European football and plan for it. So they they accept their big players will get poached, but they've always got something lined up, usually from the academy, if not elsewhere. They they know they have to keep their eye on the future and keep planning. Brighton are exactly the same. Mm. They're a team that have lost two big names in the summer, but you wouldn't have known it because they knew it was going to happen. They haven't got this sense of, oh my goodness, Cucarella's gone for over 50 million. Well, we going they knew that was going to happen. So they They plan and plan and plan and plan knowing that if they can make a profit, they will let players go. And and it doesn't harm them so they're able to play as if the season hadn't ended and it wasn't a first game. Whereas Man United have a sense of entitlement so they don't plan for thinking we need to think ahead, we have to be one step ahead of the rest. They think, oh, we are Manchester United, think nice things will happen to us. So they look like a mess, hadn't planned properly. And even they'd got one player that Hag had wanted in Christian Eriksen. He chose to play him out of position for half the match. So you do think, that to me is just so ironic that he has come from a philosophy where you don't take things for granted. And yet there he is plonked in a, club where they take
1: everything for granted i just add on to that hugh and obviously alan gregor is that i read in that column at the weekend was that he openly admitted he hated running you know he'd say once a week he'd go and do his running himself and yet his team run for fun you know it's always find (laughs) the irony in that where you know you have a player or someone who's played in the game who you know strolled around on the football pitch and yet they're their team will run for hell, you know, just keep going and going and going. Look, the the football club is run brilliantly. Tony Bloom is someone not, I don't really know. And no one really knows Tony Bloom, but I played poker against him many, many years ago. And the way he does the handling of his football club and, Obviously, there, Al, and Gregor alluded to it. You know, the way the football club is run, and it is identifying what we need all the time. And it's not one player, it could be three of the same position or even five. And nothing changes. You know, Bloom gets the maximum for two players. You know, Bazuma, not so much as in. He, you know, Cookerale was extraordinary fee from Chelsea. That was just sixty odd million pound for a, you know a guy who's done one season in the Premier League, and yet Bloom stood there not letting anything happen. But what he wanted for the club, and look, and Hugh, you're Man United fan. Danny Welbeck played everything like a Man United's forward should play. We just touched on Mitrovic. Watching Danny Welbeck, who used to be a Man United player, who was a free transfer. Watching Alana, a free transfer. Watching Joel Veltman, a right back, who they paid 800000 for, and I watched a lot of when he was at Ajax. And you think, one had you know, a structure put in place and the other one is just hit and miss, hit and miss all the time. And you know what? They're missing all the time at the moment, Man United and what they do. And watching Brighton where it's all hits and just think, wow, you know, this club is... Matthew Benham is doing the same thing at uh, Brentford. Them two, Benham and Tony Bloom, used to be partners in their business ventures. Okay? And they've both got the same identity at each football club that even if they lose someone, they know they can replace them. And, and I find that extraordinary. And, and Al said, you know, it's run like IX I is. It's exactly that.
3: Tony, who's the most interesting person you've played poker with?
1: well, I played. Well, no, I would say I don't know if you know him, but know the, the guy who plays. Everybody loves Raymond. Uh, what is his name? Oh God, the, the main Yes, I've played against him in in Vegas, okay. and that was That's very funny because cool. I love the show. But um, yes, I played against him. Uh, I mean, Bloom was. He's known as the Lizard which is literally the ice cold lizard. He doesn't show any reaction to anything and he, he seems to operate like that as an owner of a football club. You know, he's the best negotiator. I mean, people we talk about Daniel Levy, but Tony Bloom sort of goes along and runs this football club and it's like, wow, he never makes really any comments on anything. I tried to get an interview with him about 10 years ago and it was a flat no purely because I think he knew I knew quite a bit about his background, you know, and where he started and if you Google him and say his career is now he He hasn't played poker for probably 10 maybe even 15 years in tournaments he's earned three and a half million dollars in poker earnings okay winning into what he's won in tournaments and you can you can go on the Hendon mob and look at it and see tony bloom there this guy employed a lot of young poker players that were brilliant geniuses on numbers and employed them in his football strategy He's done that. I know some of the young players he employed. They they've worked for him, and they knew nothing about football, but knew everything about stats and numbers.
5: Can I put in a request that this year's Christmas dinner is actually a poker match for all of us? That sounds
4: fun. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most jarring things, too, quickly is that I was thinking about this the other day. When was the last player Man United signed? Uh, who, who was the last player Man United signed? Who improved? Like you could say that Bruno hit the ground running, right? And he was, yeah. but he's 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 drifting now. So I, I I was looking back, and I I think it could be like Robin van Persie. That's like we're talking a decade ago. It's incredible. And the jar the jarring thing is every single Brighton player has improved under Graham Potter. A, like an endless list of of Brentford players yes. have improved at that football club, no matter who the manager is, because there's a culture that's like that's what that's what we're here to do. We're here to improve. If we all improve it individually, we'll do it, do it collectively. Like, I know this is probably depressing for you, but I, it, like, what is, what are Man United now? It's just remarkable how, how far they have fallen. Well, it's not a
3: shock that they lost at home to Brighton at all. season. Derby yeah. no. Henry Winter writing in the Times that there aren't enough leaders at United from top to bottom, basically saying the lack of direction emanates from the owners. So it's interesting you're talking about uh, Brighton and Brentford's owners tony yeah. the links that we've seen to adrian rabio and marco arnautovic suggest to me that there is a, a very uh, strong sense that there is no leadership and no direction at <laughs> manchester united what's gone on with De Jong underlines that after about four weeks most manchester united fans were saying give up on it you need players that are going to improve your team and there they still are in the transfer window making more and more mistakes actually funny enough Alison, I should ask you about this because I've been thinking about Manchester United recently. Are Liverpool fans looking at United and seeing similarities to what led to them not winning a title for 30 years? Was there a sense that that happened in the 90s with Liverpool, a lack of leadership and direction?
5: I, um, no, they're not, because it's not even comparable, to be, to be quite honest. It really isn't. There were mistakes made at Liverpool and the wrong owners were there. But as a club, it, it never lost its identity at all. And the succession of managers weren't quite right, but there, there was always that sense of round the corner there would be something amazing could happen.
3: Tell the truth.
5: No, I'm you telling the truth. Brilliant. It was never, it, was, it was never, it was never as bad as it is now for Manchester United. It really isn't. I feel though, even the slippery slope is getting slipper more slippery and steeper. There isn't, there isn't light at the end of the tunnel at all, to quote Serena Williams, who talked about light at the end of the tunnel this week. It, there isn't any. There really isn't. I mean, it's it's as though it's la- layer upon layer of joke. So you get in someone who's respected like Ten Hag and you think, ah, OK, here's someone who's going to end the jokes. But no, what does he do? He, he comes in and he makes like silly little tweaks like, Wanting wanting the dugout to be nearer the fans to, and just silly things like which hotels they stay in. These this is not what Manchester United need. And if you actually think you can walk into somewhere like Old Trafford and by fiddling with what time you have supper is going to change everything, then you're a bit of an idiot, to be quite
4: honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's come on, he's doing he's he's clearly a, a details driven guy with, with anyone who's kind of read anything about him would, would, would know that. So he's just looking at everything. Well,
5: detail, yeah, but come what, on, no, Gregor, 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 Gregor details, his... details do not, that's not what the club need, details about how long the pencil sharpener is. That's not That's not what you need now.
4: No, but that's what he controls. So what what he what he does not control is the people above him, the people who run the cr- recruitment. And it's quite telling, in fact, that a lot of the players he's assigned or been linked with are players he's worked with in the past. So he could he's controlling what he can control. It, the things that are out of his control are what really are dragging Manchester United down. Yeah, but and do that's you know,
5: who okay, yeah. okay. No, I'm not disputing that he's a detail driven bloke, and that's fantastic. But that, that he actually believed he'd go in there and by having the attention to the small detail would make the big picture better. I think would be de- the deluded part.
4: Look, he's the latest guy who's been sold, sold a dummy, he's sold a dream. And like, look, it's one game. Let's not get too fired ourselves, but. All the evidence suggests that all the problems that are dragging Manchester United into the ditch are still there.
1: Yeah. Look, look, I would say they're stealing a pen and robbing a bank and they're two different things, but they're both a crime (laughs) of theft, OK? Now, why I'm saying that is because the details that I watched on Saturday... The small details. Well, the alarming one was playing Ericsson down the middle as a false nine, which I didn't even envisage. And when I saw him there, I was like, "Well, I've never seen him play that position ever." Now we can all go, "Well, false number nines at Man City and wherever other clubs have done it," and that, that's a fair point. That's a massive detail. That is that is robbing a bank. That is a, a massive change. In uh, I, I I looked at United the weekend. I thought, "What do they remind me of?" And I I don't want to go just down to poor poor performance by individuals, but they looked like a glorified, bad five-a-side team. That's what they look like to me. I'm watching them and thinking, everybody who's getting on the ball is looking for the pass. It's like on the five-a-side gyms you play when you finish playing football. You go and meet your mates, Gregor, or something. You know, that sort of idea. And I I come away thinking, he will get away with that performance because Brighton were brilliant and also Man United's first home game. And this isn't isn't a surprise result. But there was nothing in their performance that even had any sort of... Idea of the past of what you would expect at Man United. You know, I'm I'm seeing them get dominated in midfield. I'm seeing Welbeck literally run behind uh, Harry Maguire every five minutes. Martinez, who played alongside him, by the way, yes, it's his first game, but he didn't give me any assurance at all that I thought him and Maguire could even be okay. I mean, I remember talking last year about Varane coming from Real Madrid, and I went. I said straight away. I said, look, he's not the player he once was. United have got a player that wasn't as good as what he used to be. That had, that won loads of trophies in Madrid. Now, United have got to change what they're about, and I, I don't like their transfer targets. I, when I saw when I was like, wow, no. First thing I thought of was, that's is that an Eric Cantona? Well, when Cantona joined Man United, he was 26. This guy's 33. Cantona had left before he was 33 at Man United. And also he come the year that the class of 92 came in. That was the year Eric Cantona, who was that, you know, maverick of a footballer. That's an out has been that, but you would be bringing in a, a player that I just don't know. I mean, I know stuff about, for people I know who work for Náutovic, talking about rocking the boat, this guy sinks boats within a football club. I, I get angry when I talk about Man United because, you know, Alison made the point about Liverpool and where they were and is this a comparison? And I I sort of think, well, Graham Sooner's Liverpool team weren't particularly good and I think they finished just above mid-table, uh, if I can remember exactly, but around that sort of position. And they were pretty poor. But P- United had been poor for a much longer time.
3: Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that, Tony. And I was reading Wayne Rooney's a couple of days ago uh, in the Times. Um, he was talking about Cristiano Ronaldo, he said Manchester United should allow him to leave. Did we get an answer on Sunday to why they need him so much, Gregor?
4: No, we got an answer to why uh, they're <laughs> still so dysfunctional. They, they need him if they don't sign anyone else. They need to sign other strikers and then let them go, get rid but, you know, we're talking about why did he play a false name with Ericsson? That's your answer, because they've got a moody, unfit Ronaldo on the bench. So, like, it, it, I, I'm really not holding any blame of, at all to, to Eric Ten Hag yet. This is just, he's just the latest patsy in the seat. Man United would be better off without Ronaldo. I think we could all agree on that. What they need to do is is figure out how to, how to have a joined up recruitment policy that doesn't, go and sign a guy who's what whats Tony is 20C33 and has played a couple of years in Shanghai. I mean, it's insane. It's insane.
5: Nobody nobody forced Ten Hawk to take the job. You're being far too kind, Gregor. He chose to take this job. If you believe you're the Messiah after all that's gone on, that that, that is an element of delusion.
4: But you can be sold to, you can be sold to vision about the change that they keep talking about and you know, about the new about you know <laughs> new roles for people in important places, but we're just not seeing any evidence of it having any effect yet. So
1: can I just jump in there because there's one thing that was alarming to me is that you know making you have to hold Ten Hag to you know to what happened on Saturday. You know he is the gaffer on that particular day. Now he's got players who I would say the way he wants to play they're not comfortable on the ball. First of all, the two midfielders, that's quite obvious. They're not the quality of the way he wants to play. Now, I'd add in Rashford ticks that box as well for me as a a forward that, keeping and passing and moving the ball the Ajax way which obviously that's his identity I'd even argue the goalkeeper the goalkeeper is not good enough with his feet to be expected to play out from the back so there's an alarming mistake from Ten Hag there thinking well I can't do this at the moment I don't have the players in that are capable of being so comfortable on the ball for us to be able to do that you know what did what did Pep Guardiola do when he first joined Manchester City? He went up to Joe Hart and said, "You're not for me. I play a certain way. I'm going to bring in a goalkeeper." So the first move he did.
4: Yeah, no, I, look, you're right. There are clearly glaring, glaring, holes. But if this is the way he wants to play, he, you know, often managers believe that they can, they can change players. And they can you know add something to the game but i also think you just look around manchester united's 11 there and think that there's probably five or six of them that shouldn't be anywhere near a manchester united starting 11. so he's he's in trouble
3: still some way to go in the podcast, but I did want to get some quick assessments from all of you on some of the other games in the Premier League. Wanted to begin with Aston Villa, beaten 2-0 at Bournemouth. Of course, they're another side uh, just been promoted. Kiefer Moore, congratulations. 29 years old, 12 clubs, a Premier League debut and a goal. But really, I think the storyline was about Stephen Gerrard afterwards. He's now won 10 of his 28 Premier League games in charge. 35% 35% win rate. That's the same as Gary Neville at Valencia. So for me, that's an issue at Aston Villa. But his comments about Tyrone Mings for me was slightly unnecessary as well. Uh, of course, he's made John McGinn the captain at Villa in place of Mings. But Gerard said to local press after the game, when Tyrone's back at his best, looks me in the eye and shows me that he's ready to play, he'll get opportunities. I think some people saw it as an unnecessary dig. Agreeing with me, I guess. But the last thing I think Gerard needs right now is a little bit of unrest in the changing room. And everyone knows Tyrone Mings is a big character. So is this gonna bring more pressure to Steven Gerrard? What do you think, Alison?
5: Well, it's, it's an interesting one. I Cause on the face of it, I, I have no problem at all with John McGinn being the captain. I think he's the logical choice. He's the heartbeat of the team. He never stops running. He, he clearly cares deeply when they're not playing well, he's the one player that's trying to G people along and also playing by example. I think Tyrone Mings is, is, is patchy. His form is patchy. I think he has, men, has had many matches where I thought he's not defended that well. Uh, he's sort of one of those players that uh, has stature in the game because of how he talks and his views on politics and um, he was behind taking the knee at, at matches. So he has that stature. But in terms of being a pure defender on the pitch, I don't think he's i don't think he's as good as people sometimes paint him to be so i have i and if if you really want your captain to be someone who's going to be one of your first names on your team sheet and you may be coming to the conclusion that mings isn't as top a defender as you are that, all of that makes perfect sense to move it away but the moving of the captaincy there's an art to doing it as a manager you do it incredibly smoothly and no one notices who the new captain is, or it becomes a major issue that might be debilitating for the squad. Again, I'm going to use the word irony again, because Steven Gerard was made captain of Liverpool in October. So he didn't even start the season as Liverpool captain. Joulier said, Oh, in October, I'm, you know, I'm suddenly going to make you captain. It did not, it did not cause a single, single ripple at all, because it was handled beautifully. Julien sort of spoke beautifully about the team and how he has captains in defence, captains in midfield, captains in attack, and it all made perfect sense. So he Gerard knows there's a good way and a bad way to swap your captains around, and he doesn't seem to have... I don't think he's made the wrong decision, but I think he might have handled it poorly. But, of course, we don't know... We don't know what kind of conversations he's had, and whether he's been disappointed with the re- the response from Mings on that level.
4: You're right. We don't know that, but I mean, I would I would say that before this, it was handled pretty smoothly. Tyrone Mings, like, released a you know he said a little statement on Twitter saying, "Look, I totally, I totally understand this. John McGinn's a good choice. Um, you know, he took he took it well, and he didn't play in the game. Like, th- there was no reason to point a finger at." It. Tyrone Mings I understand the line of questioning from, from the journalists afterwards because uh, when it's always the case as Gerard said when a player is sitting on the bench and their team lose and concede two two pretty bad goals mm. they point at the player on the bench and say he should be playing to say kind of like I don't know look me in the eye like it was just very odd it struck me as very odd Alison's right we don't know what's going on from the outside it looks like Mings has taken it pretty well and it just <laughs> it, it smacked a little bit of Gerard trying to be trying too hard to be the kind of no-nonsense boss. I don't know, as as you kind of alluded to here, I'm not sure how well that would go down.
1: Can I jump in here because you might think I've got this crazy conspiracy in my head that I could be way off the mark... Dropping your captain is, or say, taking the captaincy away from him is a be- very big decision. And I kept thinking of all the captains. Over, when it was announced, I kept thinking of all the captains I played under, how would they have taken and thinking, how would they have taken that decision? Well, I could say 99.9 of them would have gone pretty, would have been really upset and quite angry. So it's not like, oh, yeah, that's fair enough. It's a big decision. Now, here goes my slight conspiracy theory. When they played Man City at the final game of the season and they were leading and City got back to win 3-2 at the death and stopped Liverpool winning the title, Tyro Mings for the third goal, gives the ball it's away, true. gives the ball <laughs> away, it goes out wide, it gets passed in the middle, across, to, uh, across the face of the goal and Gundogan scores. I really believed in that moment Steven Gerrard was like, because like, he's obviously expecting his lead to his captain, he makes a really poor clearance that enables City to win the league. It was part of me that thought, I wonder how he's going to react to Min's mistake, and and during the summer, obviously things escalated, and I think he lost total faith in Tyrone Mings as, as a player that he can trust and believe he's capable. And obviously the connection of Liverpool when losing the title in that moment and the bigger picture. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying it's only based on Liverpool, but it it was a big moment that that was his final game. If you say that was his final game as captain. So what made the decision over the summer to go from Stephen Gerrard to go, he's not going to be my captain no more. What happened in that game? We capitulated and Tyrone Mings for the third goal. And sometimes, and I learned this from Jack Cholton, I made one mistake in a game that he ended up dropping me and leaving me out of his island team. And that, from a one mistake that he saw that I did. And I kept thinking, I wonder if Mings is paying the price for that goal and that failure to get a result out of the game that, gerard has gone Not for me anymore That's enough And he hadn't had He'd made a number of mistakes In the season anyway But that's just my My feeling on it I think that was a big mistake That enabled City to win the league That Gerard just was infuriated with
5: Aren't we all in agreement That McGinn being captain of Villa Is a perfectly sensible decision though
4: Yeah well particularly If you're not going to play Mings Which clearly is not yeah. as, is So not,
5: there's, nothing, as... there's nothing wrong with the decision no. It's just these weird comments
3: I think he sent a signal. If you want Tyrone Mings, you know he's there, basically.
4: Yeah, I agree. I think he would be happy for him to can be I, in the club. Yeah.
1: Can I ask you all three? Did you what I said about the incident against Man City? Would you think that that's an overreaction from my behalf, or do you think there's? I think
4: that could have been. I think that could have been like the final nail in the yes. coffin, Tony. Yeah. I yeah. think because there were other errors. He didn't have a good season last season. Let's be no. honest. And I think he was dropped. He's dropped for a game or two. I can't really remember when, but so he did drop him before. And I think, you know, we knew from the back end of last season, he's not his player. He's not going yeah. to play for Gerrard. So that, but as you say, that was a big one and it was a big game. So maybe that was the final nail.
3: Elsewhere, a manager who is cruising at the moment, actually, I think sent a bit of a, a message. I know it was Southampton. They scored plenty of goals against Southampton before but Spurs scoring four on the opening day for the first time since 1994 against Southampton. They were just purring, Kulosevsky purring. There could have been more goals. Things didn't click exactly as they wanted, but they still scored four. I even saw better play from the likes of Sessegnon and Emerson Royal and I got worried. Not that they were going to win the league, but that they might be in the conversation seriously in the conversation which until that point and yes it's one game I had thought was a bit of a serious over over um stating of how good Tottenham can be but they, they, there's a confidence growing there um, and I was impressed by this performance is why I wanted to to outline it Tony what did you see from Spurs this weekend?
1: Well, we touched on uh, physical condition earlier on in the podcast, and Tottenham and seeing their images of the pre-season, which they were quite clearly taken to the absolute highest level of physical condition. <laughs> um, they had amazing energy. Amazing energy. And the like you touched on there, Hugh, the the wing-backs getting into positions, setting on scoring, going 1-0 behind, continually relentless pace of the game. It was just extraordinary. And I know many people have muted this out and saying Kane and Son didn't score. I, OK, I get that. But if you imagine that, if you ever would have you know, fought before the game when they've won four, you immediately think, well, Suns probably got two or Kane's got two and blah. And it comes from so many different areas. And the numbers of bodies they got in the 18-yard box for every goal tells you this side are going for the jugular. And I think we done a podcast at the end of last season. We talked about Conte with his first time at UVA, where he changed a club that was basically just above mid-table when he joined and then took them to incredible heights winning the league immediately was... He makes devastating change at a football club and I, I'm pretty sure this Tottenham, I, I don't even think it's a conversation in saying they make the Champions League. I, I just think that's an obvious one now. It's how close can they get to what City and Liverpool have done in the last three and four years I think is the the better conversation which I think will be way closer uh, than what we've seen in years gone by.
4: I think the the, the big thing is defence. I think they look like it suits Eric, Eric Dyer to be the centre man in a, in a in a back three, Romero is a top class player, yeah. and Davies it suits Davies as well, and you know they've brought they brought in Longley as well. You know you said as you said Emerson Royal played well. I, I don't think he's good enough personally defensively, and Doherty's not really reached the heights he did at Wills at Spurs. But just bringing in Jed Spence as well, who's you know probably he's looking at it a little more as one for the future. I think probably it'll keep them on their toes a bit more, make them raise their standards a bit, and Sessignon was brilliant I mean probably one of his best games since he's been at the club so mm. we don't really have to talk about the front three because we know we know how how blistering they are on the counter and how talented they are Kulisevsky being a brilliant signing but for me it's just if Spurs can if Spurs can be solid and as you know as Conte's teams often are if they can be solid and, and get that kind of formation resolute they're going to be going much closer this year I think they'll be I, think, I don't think they're going to be in the conversation at the end I think they'll be They'll be there until they'll be there a, a long a long part of the way though.
3: Perisic on the bench, Spence on the yep. bench. Yeah, Mora came on. Longley, who you mentioned, Basuma as well, and Richarlison not even involved. For me, that's the big change at Tottenham. That strength in depth, which we questioned before. We might still have questions over some of their starters too, but look, they've still got time in the window. What they've done so far has been pretty fantastic. I'm just, I'm a little bit worried about them. Are you, Alison?
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I don't need to be worried about them. You're the one that needs to be worried about them. <laughs> Just pushing further down the pecking order Man United, aren't they? But, um, no, it looks, I, I, I mean, it's impressive how we seem to, have, the conversation seems to have flipped from Spurs being a club where you think they're lucky to have Kane and Son and how can they possibly keep them happy when no one else in the team really is on their level and they don't have the backup there to achieve anything and suddenly as you say Hugh the the, uh, the bench is overflowing Richarlison was suspended so we didn't even get to see him on the bench let alone get 10 minutes or whatever i mean it's just it's it's looking it's looking really good and conte we've talked a lot about the impact coaches have their style of coaching his is, is quite specific and different in that he um, you know he, he's, his famous quote from pre-season was I, I don't have to make the players happy they have to make me happy and in one fell swoop he solved the problem of people getting enough time and being worried about being on the bench they're going to be happy to be even chosen to be in the match day squad so with a chance to get off the bench to impress him uh, he's, he's played it cleverly so far
3: I wanted to end by just discussing the goal of the weekend. It came in the championship Watford's Ismaila Sar halfway line lob and I love I like these lobs because it wasn't a, it wasn't a right up in the air and drop down over the keeper, not like Beckham's it was fired fizzed over button in the West Brom goal and yeah, stunning goal. Um, Tony and Gregor I really just wanted <laughs> to ask the times you've scored goals just like that of which I'm sure there were plenty. You, Tony,
1: well, I'd say, Hugh, something that something's really annoying me in life, and especially being a footballer, is that people who get goals that I never got. Okay, as in lobbing from the halfway line, or even doing a David Beckham pinging the ball from the halfway line and volleying from thirty yards out into the top corner. They're all things I never done, and do you know what? I never done them in training either. So it's, like, <laughs> it's I can't even say. Well, I did that in training once. Well, no, I didn't. I never locked the keeper from well from the halfway line, which is you know nearly best part of fifty yards. So, I'm always very envious, as you can probably hear from my voice, that um, of players that can do things I could never do.
4: Tony, I could stretch it even further than that. Like, we're not even going to go. Not even going to go to training. I'm going to go to Celtic Boys Club under twelve.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> it was that brief but like wonderful time in youth football where you were getting a bit stronger. The goalkeeper still weren't that tall, and you're playing with a size four football. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh I don't remember who I was playing against, but I remember I scored about 15 goals from left back that season for those that exact reason you could shoot from anywhere and uh love the goalkeeper. And I did it this one time from it was just over the halfway line. I can't say it was more than half, it was kind of in that D and yes that's, Greg that's, that's the closest I've ever come as a you 12 got, year
1: old Gregor, have you got any video evidence of that
4: absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> and I hope no one's
3: listening <laughs> have, you, have, you, have you had one of those scored against your side and did you blame the goalkeeper can you think of that
4: I remember one at Barnet actually and the wind was involved our goalkeeper Tommy Lee at Chesterfield. I think it might even have been from like a dead ball I think I think it might have been like a free kick from around the halfway line and it was like swung into the box well, fired into the box, but then the wind caught it and he'd come out It <laughs> just swung over him into the empty net. You did get some stick for that one, yeah.
1: Well, Hugh, I got in my career 267 goals, okay, international and club. I think I got a handful and I mean a handful from outside the 18-yard box. Everything I got was mainly in the 18-yard box. So I can't give you any nostalgia in my, you know, in my thinking of years gone by of, oh, yes, that moment. I just didn't have them.
3: And just quickly before we go, um, Alison, you've had a lot of Liverpool players like a long-distance goal. What's your favourite ever?
5: Ah, well, it's not not going to be a Liverpool player, although he was a Liverpool player. So Charlie Adam against Chelsea. I was reporting on the game and... I have a list of obsessions and one of my obsessions at that time was Charlie Adam. I felt he wasn't, he was underrated. I I, I was slightly obsessed with him and I was boring everybody and saying, oh, I can tell, I can tell Charlie Adam's in the mood to do something good today. And they were were looking at me like, come on, come on, this is Stamford Bridge. But I could just sense he was in, you know, a twinkle in his eye or something. And sure enough, he did score from, the halfway line. I mean his his left foot is a dream. And I just felt very, very smug because then a lot of people looking at me like I was sort of, I don't know, needed to be um burnt at a stake or drowned in a chair or something. Because I could see I could see I could sort of I knew it was coming. It was very, very, very beautiful. And he he did things like that, and I think most people who do score from the halfway line tend to do it like with a slight shrug, like they do it every week. And he he was no exception. It was lovely. It was just lovely to be there for it as well.
4: I've got a new favourite after watching a few this morning, and it's Dejan Stankovic for Inter Milan against Schalke in <laughs> 2011. Look it up because it's different. The goalkeeper came out, and like you know, there was a, th- a ball played through over the top for someone else to chase. I can't remember, who. and the goalkeeper came rushing bam out and well, headed it.
3: Manuel well Neuer, no less.
4: He came out and headed it clear, yeah. And mm-hmm. on the volley, Stankovic hit one of those beautiful first-time, like, flat volleys. You know, it wasn't like a big looping one that kind of, you know, down and bounced a few times. He just, he angled his body and hit it first time on the volley, flat, straight over the goalkeeper into the net. It was an absolute worldie. Because that's a bit different. You know, some of the, they're all great. They're all, like, they all, like, make you gasp. But this one was, like, the, just incredible technique so that's my new favourite Dejan Stankovic
1: I'd go for Wayne Rooney at West Ham when he scored one on the volley from a long way out and just, and Wayne was probably playing as well as he ever done for Manchester United at that particular time. And when you see someone, you know, it's a bit when David Beckham done it at at Selworth Park, you know, that was a statement, but we all probably knew that Beckham could do somewhere along the career because his range of passing from long distance was extraordinary. And he did that at Palace and Rooney to do that at West Ham with a bit more dynamism in his play and just, you know, he could strike a wonderful ball, uh, Rooney. And he's probably done it more than once in his career. He's probably done it two or three times. So I would go for that one.
3: What's
5: yours,
1: Hugh? I like
3: um, powerful ones on an angle. So if you've never seen it, Clarence Seydorf, 1997, against Atletico Madrid, completely bamboozles the, uh, the goalkeeper who went up about four yards left of the post and leaves an open goal, but it's hit with so much power that you can understand. Honestly, it's about 45 yards out on an angle and it's hit with so much power. The goalkeeper's got no idea how to react. Doesn't have any time. Just left looking absolutely ridiculous. Reminiscent of one of my other favorites, Cristiano Ronaldo against Porto on the angle across the goalkeeper hit with so much power. I think that was a Champions League knockout game as well so um, yeah similar goals two of my favourites so that is it for the podcast today uh, once again I apologise for my voice and I promise I will be back in fine voice and speaking a lot more for those of you that are woozy fans uh, on Thursday's podcast in the meantime make sure you subscribe to the pod make sure you check out more of our great journalism is the times.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you on Thursday I'm sorry but I'll see
2: Thanks for listening to the game podcast from The Times. If you've enjoyed the analysis on this show, you can now get even more with your Times subscription. Every Monday at 5pm, James Gearbrandt's football newsletter provides in-depth insight into the weekend's action, exclusively to Times subscribers. Sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash newsletters.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
2: VoiceOver on Settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.